This is a Cato Special Podcast. I'm Caleb Brown. Last night, the Cato Institute gave the Milton Friedman Prize for Advancing Liberty to Chinese economist Mao Yushe. The keynote speaker for the evening was New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. His message was pretty simple. Politicians should talk to taxpayers and voters like they're adults. This is a portion of his speech. When I first took office in January of 2010 in New Jersey, optimism was a hard thing to find, and for very good reason. In the eight years before I became governor, our state raised taxes and fees at the state level 115 times in eight years. In case you were eating something, let me repeat that. (laughs) Taxes and fees 115 times increased in eight years. In the decade before I became governor, from 2000 to 2009, New Jersey had zero private sector job growth. Literally zero. It was a zero job growth decade in New Jersey. In the years before I became governor, $70 billion in wealth left New Jersey in four years. The four years before I became governor, not diminished wealth, departed wealth, $70 billion in departed wealth. Our unemployment rate was over 10% with 155,000 private sector jobs lost in the four years of my predecessor, John Corzine. You know, you always wonder when you read a speech, what will be the laugh line? (laughs) To my staff, mark that down, that was it. (laughs) The highest tax burden in the country with the worst climate for small business and a bloated state government with the highest number of government workers per square mile in the country. Yeah, you can laugh unless you live there. (laughs) So when I came to office in those last few weeks of January of 2010, you would think that given the hand I was already dealt it, the news couldn't get worse. And you would be wrong. In my second week as governor, my chief of staff and my state treasurer came into my office and said that if we did not cut $2.2 billion in spending in the next five weeks, New Jersey would not be able to meet payroll for the second pay period in March. Imagine that. 60% of the fiscal year was already gone. 60% of the money was already out the door. We had a $29 billion budget where we had to find $2.2 billion, not in cuts to projected growth or any of that, (laughs) but money. See, so when people say he has no self-control, you can say, no, no, I saw him, he does. We had to find $2.2 billion in cuts for money that had already been appropriated. We essentially had to impound the money back from the departments who had already been appropriated to. And all this just, not so that we could meet some lofty goals of cutting taxes, this was just so we could meet payroll for the second pay period in March in what is the second wealthiest state per capita in America. Do you need any greater example of what happens to an economy when a state government overtaxes, 
overspends, overborrows, and overregulates. Just visit New Jersey in January of 2010. So now I had two choices when confronted with this meeting. I could sit down and negotiate with the Democratic leadership and the democratically controlled legislature, trying to come to an agreement on these cuts, or thanks to New Jersey's unique constitutional structure, cut spending through executive order. Now, for those of you who have watched me over the last two and a half years, if you believe I chose the former, then it is now time for you to leave. You are not smart enough to be here at the Milton Friedman dinner. So we went with the second choice. We literally sat in a room over the course of three weeks and went over all 2,400 line items in the New Jersey state budget that I inherited. The result was finding cutting $2.2 billion. So when we did it, the great thing about operating by executive order at first was I didn't have to tell anybody. So I had all these things and I, we made up the executive order and I signed the executive order and I asked for a speech before the joint session of the legislature. It's my first one. And there was a tradition, apparently, that governors would give copies of their speech before they arrived at the chamber for members of the legislature to review it and know when to either, on the Republican side, appropriately clap, or on the Democratic side, look grim and sit on your hands. I decided not to give them that option and, and broke with tradition, would not give them a text beforehand. So it was a rather tense room that I walked into in that first speech that I was giving before the joint session. And it was about a 40-minute speech. But the good news for you is, I can break it down now, two and a half years later, to 30 seconds. And some, in fact, said I should have done it the first time. But here's basically what I said to the people in the room. I said, I came into, the, into office and you handed me an enormous fiscal problem and a budget that was $2.2 billion out of balance in the middle of the year. You proposed nothing to fix the problem. So I went to my office, I found $2.2 billion in cuts, I signed an executive order, they're now in effect, I fixed your problem, you can thank me later, have a good day. Now, now, you can only imagine, as I walked out of the assembly chamber, the reaction from the legislature. Reporters descended upon the floor of the legislature, and Democratic legislators began calling me names. Julius Caesar, Napoleon Bonaparte, all those great leaders of the past I admire so much. And the next day, I was walking into the State House at the same time as the Democratic Senate President. Now, the Senate President in New Jersey is a good guy, and I like him. He's a friend. His name is Steve Sweeney. And Steve's from the southern part of our state, and Steve is the President of the Iron Workers Local Union in New Jersey. So he's a big guy like me. We came walking in together, and I told him, I. Steve, I said, I read all this stuff you said about me in the newspaper, Julius Caesar, Napoleon Bonaparte, and you know what? You guys have turned me around. You've turned me around. I'm going to go upstairs. I'm going to vacate the executive order. I'm going to send this problem down the hall and let you guys fix it. Now, 
What I'll tell you now is all you need to know about politics in New Jersey. Steve looked at me earnestly and said, hey, hey, governor, don't overreact. <laughs> you're, you're new at this. You didn't do so bad. <laughs> My point in telling you the story is with the first real substantial problem that I faced in office. How you confronted that problem sets the tone for your administration. I made clear from the first day that decades of fiscal irresponsibility were no longer going to be tolerated, that this was the administration that was going to put an end to practices that had become accepted practice in New Jersey. As I said from my days on the campaign trail in 2009, if you elect me, I'll go to Trenton and turn it upside down. The press said, we don't know what that means. After that speech, they were informed. I made clear that we weren't kidding around, that we meant to radically change the way government in New Jersey was going to operate. And now the New Jersey that we have today is very different. Remember, the next year, we had an $11 billion budget deficit on a $29 billion budget. 37% deficit. By percentage, the highest deficit of any state in America. And the Democrats had their solution. You've heard this before, a millionaire's surcharge. Now, let me say it's a surcharge because we already have a millionaire's tax in New Jersey imposed by Governor McGreevy. And this is the great thing about New Jersey. See, our millionaire's tax applies to any business or individual that makes over $400,000 a year. <laughs> now, this is called New Jersey math. <laughs> but to show you how optimistic I am, I've tried to use this, at least in a small way, as a plus. I say to people, listen, come to New Jersey if you always dreamed of being a millionaire. Because <laughs> even if you're not, we'll tax you like you are one. So they proposed a surcharge on the millionaire's tax, which would make our top rate 10 and three quarter percent. Third highest in America, behind only, thank God, for California and Hawaii. But we would have been third. And so they passed the bill and they brought it down to my office with great fanfare, cameras following them. And you know, my mother taught me to be polite when guests are coming, I put my coat on, I came outside, I went to greet them. And they handed me the bill. And you know, I don't remember what it's called exactly, but you know what Democrats do with these tax increase bills, right? It was probably, it was something like the Freedom and Justice for All Act, you know? And so, and like they hope you go, hey, Freedom and Justice for All, I'm in, let's go. Um, and you don't really read the thing. But I'm from New Jersey, so. So I said to the leaders of the legislature who brought me the bill, I said, here, just sit down for one second. I'll be right with you. And I went into my pocket, I took out my pen, and I sat down at the little table I had in that outer office, and I vetoed it, and I handed it right back to them. And I said, here you go, we don't need to be dealing with this. And they said, we'll be back. And I said, we'll see. 
And they tried to override my veto and Republicans stood with me and they didn't. And what we did was we closed an $11 billion budget gap without raising taxes on the people of New Jersey for the first time in 10 years, showing them it was possible. And then last year, we passed a $2.3 billion business tax cut for businesses in New Jersey to try to bring people back into New Jersey to make it affordable for them to create jobs. And what's happened since? Nearly 70,000 new private sector jobs have been created in New Jersey because what we're doing is once again creating a sense of optimism in our state. For the first time in 10 years, a majority of New Jerseyans recently polled believe the state is back on the right track. <laughs> to give you some perspective, on election day, 2009, the percentage of New Jerseyans who believe the state was on the right track was 19%. Today, that number is 53%. Do not tell me that people in this country are not ready to hear the truth. We cut spending in every department of state government. We reduced overall spending in my first full budget by over 9%, not off projections of growth, off of baseline spending from the year before. We cut education, we cut military affairs, we cut benefits for veterans, we cut everything. And folks, folks told me those were the third rails of politics. Given that I was still upright, I decided to go for something else. And that was entitlements in New Jersey. The pensions and health benefits for public employees this is when they told me it was going to be the real problem. But we went out and we put forward common sense reforms, but tough ones. Folks had to pay more into their pension. They had to actually pay for their health benefits. When I became governor, public employees in New Jersey were not required to pay anything, zero, for their health benefits. We said the retirement age had to be raised. We said early retirement had to have a greater penalty if you were going to take it. And we said there can be no cost of living adjustments to your, to your pension until your fund is solvent. They said this was gonna be impossible to do, but we did it. And we did it because we went out to the public and we told them why it was so important. We told them that the pension fund was gonna go broke in 2018. We told them that our health benefit fund was $67 billion underfunded. And that it was gonna to lead to the financial ruination of the state. What happened? We actually convinced Democrats. And that Senate president I told you about who had the funny quip on the way in early on, he deserves great credit. He sponsored the bill when only one third of his own caucus was willing to vote for it. Along with Republicans, he passed the bill in the state Senate. And the Speaker of the Assembly, a Democratic woman, she posted the bill in her house with only 13 of her 47 Democratic colleagues willing to vote yes. Why? Because we led. Because we took the risk first. Because we told the truth.
So when you see these numbers in New Jersey, and I tell you all the things that we've done, don't tell me the American people are not ready to hear the truth. They know our government's out of control. They know our debt and our deficit are out of control. And none of them, don't confuse them liking the solution with accepting it. They don't have to like it, but they know in their heart they have to accept it. And the only thing that the American people care more about than today is tomorrow. Because tomorrow's about our children and our grandchildren. Today's just about us. So let's be clear. We identified problems. We proposed specific means to fix them. We educated the public on the direct consequences of inaction. And then we compromised on a bipartisan basis to get results. Bottom line is we took action. We did it with solid principles and with strong leadership. Now, this is the only way that you can accomplish these things, is through the executive taking the risk and encouraging everyone else to come along with us when they know it's the right thing to do. So where are we today? Well, we're now in a situation where we're not dealing with multi-billion dollar budget deficits anymore. Instead, this year, I was also able to propose a budget with the first income tax cut for New Jerseyans in over 15 years. A 10% across the board tax cut that will give New Jerseyans over $9 billion in relief over the next decade. And here's the amazing thing. You would expect Democrats would be fighting me on it. But instead, the majority of Democrats in New Jersey are now saying, yes, we have to cut taxes. They're just arguing with me about the best way to do it. That proves strong, principled leadership can fundamentally change the discussion in a state or in our country and can even change the mindset in a place like New Jersey. When you have Democrats agreeing with me that it's time to cut taxes after a decade of raising them, then it's official. We have turned Trenton upside down. In New Jersey, we've done this because we put our state's interests ahead of partisan interests. And we've made friends with our Democratic colleagues who are willing to view these things, not in a partisan way, but in a common sense way. And so that's why our reforms in pension and benefit are gonna save $132 billion for taxpayers over the next 30 years. And also secure those pensions for the people who are counting on them, our police officers, our firefighters, our teachers, who are counting on those pensions for their financial future. And all of it just, I think, teaches us that leadership matters. It counts. These accomplishments set a tone that has taken hold across many other states. Look at the accomplishments that are happening being led by Republican governors in many other states. The attitude's got to be when there's a problem, you fix it. That's the job you've been sent to do. You can't wait for someone else to do it. And when you do your job, you have to tell your citizens the truth. Tell them the truth about the depth of the challenge. Tell them the truth about the difficulty of solutions. Treat them like adults. In, in the difficult times that America is in now, this is the only way to govern. When we fail to do this, we pay the price as a country many times over. The domestic price is obvious. Growth slows, high levels of unemployment persist, and we make ourselves even more vulnerable to the unpredictable behavior 
of rightfully skittish markets or the political decisions of our lenders. But there's also a foreign policy price to pay. To begin with, we diminish our ability to influence the thinking and ultimately the behavior of others. There's no better way to persuade other societies around the world to become more democratic and more market-oriented than to show that our democracy and our markets work better than any other system. We need to care about this because we believe that democracy is the best protector of human dignity, liberty, and freedom. And we know this because history shows that mature democracies are less likely to resort to force against their own people or their neighbors. We need to care because we believe in free and open trade. As exports are the best creators of high-paying jobs, and imports are a means to increase consumer choice. We, should, we have to care because all around the world, in the Middle East, in Asia, in Africa, in Latin America, people are debating their own political and economic futures right now. They're looking for inspiration right now. And we have a stake in the outcome of their debates. Middle East that could become largely democratic and at peace will be a Middle East that accepts Israel, that rejects terrorism, and becomes a dependable source of energy for the entire world. And there's no better way to reinforce the likelihood that others in the world will opt for more open societies and market-based economies than to demonstrate that our own system is working well. At one time in our history, our greatness was a reflection of our country's innovation, our determination, our ingenuity, and the strength of our democratic institutions. When there was a crisis in the world, America found a way to come together to help our allies and to fight our enemies. When there's a crisis at home, we put aside parochialism and put the greater public interest first. And in our system, we did it through strong leadership by strong leaders. Unfortunately, now, our own domestic political conduct has failed to live up to this tradition of exceptionalism. Today, our role and our ability to affect change has been diminished because of our own problems and our own inability and unwillingness to effectively deal with them. Now, I understand full well that succeeding at home, setting an example is not enough, but it's a start. The United States will only be able to sustain a leadership position around the world if the resources are there in our society to produce a society that others want to emulate. Without the authority that comes from exceptionalism, earned, earned American exceptionalism, we cannot do good for other countries. We cannot continue to be a beacon of hope for the world to aspire to. We cannot produce future generations who believe in their heart that this is the best way to govern a people. I, I realize that what I'm calling for requires a lot of our elected officials and a lot of our people, and I plead guilty to that. But I also plead guilty to being an optimist. So I believe in what this country and its citizens can accomplish if they understand what's being asked of them and how we will all ultimately benefit if the challenge is met. I believe it's possible to have leadership that understands that what's happening in New Jersey is not just because our ideas are right, and by the way, they are, 
Now, I tell my staff all the time, after we've had a big victory, and I gather them together in my office, and fortunately for us, we've had plenty of them, I tell them all the time, remember, the first reason and the most important reason we won is because we are right. There's no substitute for that. But there's something else. This is a human business. And especially in this town, we've forgotten that. In New Jersey, day after day after day, I spent time sitting with colleagues on both sides of the aisle, convincing them of the goodness of my spirit and my intentions, and letting them know that I don't believe that compromise is a dirty word. See, because the way I see it is this, there is always a boulevard between compromising your principles and get everything that you want. You have to be willing to say no to things that are at fundamental odds with your principles. You should never compromise your principles. But you also need to understand, especially in a place like New Jersey and now Washington, where there's divided government, you're also not going to get everything you want. Sometimes that boulevard is narrower, sometimes it's broader, but it is always there in my experience. And the job of a leader is to find your way onto that boulevard without driving into the ditch of compromising your principles. It can be done. And leaders have an obligation to make those tough choices. In New Jersey, this is what we're trying to do. And in the process, hopefully setting an example for the rest of the country. And believe me, if you can do this in New Jersey, uh, you can do it anywhere. I won't hear excuses from anybody. I mean, we have 700,000 more Democrats than Republicans. We hadn't elected a Republican statewide in 12 years before my election. We are coming up on our 40th anniversary of electing a Republican to the United States Senate. 1972 was the last time New Jersey sent a Republican to the United States Senate. So I don't want to hear any other state crying that their state's so hard, we can't do this. Come to New Jersey, man, and be a Republican. Then you'll know hard. But it can be done. It can be done. That's where my optimism comes from, both for my state and for our country. Because it's not about having everyone agree with you all the time. I can guarantee you. The people in New Jersey don't always agree with everything I do, and they most certainly don't always agree with the way I say it. But they know I'm telling them the truth as I see it. See, I'm not looking to be loved. I think politicians get themselves in trouble when they're looking to be loved. I get plenty of love at home. I'm not bragging, I just do. I got a great wife and four great children, and I'm not looking for the people in New Jersey to love me. Because when you're looking for love in this job, that's when deficits get run up. When you're looking for love in this job, it's because you can't say no to anything, because someone somewhere won't love you if you do it. That's why leaders balk at making uncomfortable decisions, because they think that I won't be loved. My mother told me something a long time ago. She said to me, Christopher, if you have a choice between being loved and being respected, always take being respected. Because if you're truly respected, 
True love can come, but love without respect is always fleeting. Now, of course, she's talking about women. <laughs> but, but I do think that this applies equally to politics. If you get people to respect you, if you make them understand that you're willing to say no, but you're also always willing to listen, that you're willing to stand hard on principles, the principles that you've articulated to the public in a campaign, the principles that you've been elected on, and the principles you believe in, but that you're also willing to compromise when those principles won't be violated, then respect will come. And in New Jersey, I think respect is coming for us because even those who don't agree with me know that when I look them in the eye and tell them I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it, regardless of the perceived political cost. And if I tell them no, they know. No means no. New York Magazine did a profile on me recently, always a risky thing for a Republican. The headline of the story was, the answer is no. My staff blew this up. Every one of them, my senior staff, and they've taped it to the back of their doors in their offices. So when the lobbyists and the special interests come in to see them and they close the door and they start to ask for something, they say, turn around. That's from the boss. The answer is no. It's about being consistent. It's about leading by example. It's about not putting your finger up in the wind and trying to figure out which way the wind's blowing. It's about standing for the things that we believe in, which is that liberty and freedom and the human spirit are the most powerful things in the world. And being willing to stand up to those who give you the pat and easy answers that come from those who believe that government is the answer to every solution. It's what we need to do now more than ever in our country. We need to be strong enough and tough enough to do what needs to be done and to just tell it like it is. There's no need for varnish anymore, everybody. In fact, I don't think we have the luxury to put it on. We need to say it directly to the American people. They need to hear it. And I would suggest to you they're ready. They're ready to hear it. And if we meet that challenge, like I know we can, we will allow the United States to once again export hope and liberty and freedom around the world, not just by saying it, but by living it each and every day. So I want to thank the members of the Cato Institute for setting an example for why liberty and freedom are so important to the future greatness of America. And I left all that's exciting in New Jersey tonight to come here, as I told you, because I believe in what you believe in. But please never forget, never forget, that it's not gonna come without a fight. And if you're willing to stand up and fight with me, I'm willing to stand and fight with you for those principles that we believe in and hold dear and have built this country. We need to get fighting hard 
even harder than we are now because the stakes are too great to do anything less. So we're gonna continue to fight the good fight in New Jersey. We hope that it will inspire more people to fight all around the country. And then when we talk about American exceptionalism, we can really feel it because we haven't just had it as a part of our past. We're acting to make it a bedrock of our future. Thank you all very much. Chris Christie is the governor of the state of New Jersey. He delivered the keynote address at the Milton Friedman Prize for Advancing Liberty held last night. You can learn more about the prize and its recipient, Chinese economist Mao Yushu, at our website, cato.org.